Rolling. Welcome to a special edition of the Renegade Podcast. In partnership with Rescue RN, we give you Kickstart My Heart, a revolutionary approach to resuscitation and code blue to take nurses who don't just do what they're told from novice to ninja. In episode two, our special guest is Jeff Schiller, Air Force flight nurse and ACLS PALS instructor. Just breathe. Take a second. Let's just do ABC. If you do those simple things, that's all you really need to do to save that life. Nailed it. Renegades. Welcome to the second installment of the RNA Aid in collaboration with Rescue RN Summit. <laughs> Kickstart my heart. Kickstart my heart. Our, I don't know, Susan's brother from another mother, Jeff, is here. He's going to tell you about his background and specialty, but we'll do a quick intro again. Not as lengthy as the first one. You want to hear the, the, the nitty gritty of the deets? You can go back and listen to the first installment. <laughs> Should I say installment? What are you calling them? First episode? First, whatever. Stallman seems a little, I'm, 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 I feel you. The first yeah. round. Yeah. We're Karen DeMarco and Hunter Boyd from RN Gate. And Susan Davis is here from Rescue RN. And we're, she's going to introduce herself, what this is all about, why we're doing this. And uh, Jeff, we'd like to hear all the nitty gritty 411 about you. So take it away, Susan. All right. Welcome, everybody. We're super psyched to be here. My favorite topic, which I'm, I'm happy to speak with you guys about today because. After all, everyone around me doesn't want to hear what I have to say. So I have to go to a broader audience. <laughs> I want to hear what you guys have to say about all things cardiac arrest. And what we're talking about is what, why, when, where, and how did this gigantic gap and the gap between what we learn as nurses and what we see in the clinical setting, like this giant gap between our training and what we see as a cardiac arrest response, whether it be, I mean, primarily we're looking at in hospital, but let's face it, cardiac arrest is not convenient. So it happens anywhere and everywhere in your living room at home. And whether you're up at however many thousand feet, Jeff Schiller, and or on the ground in a hospital, cardiac arrest is what it is. And I feel strongly that the response is not bomb.com. And that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to get in the lens of different nurses, how they feel about cardiac arrest, how they feel about their training, and, and what are we going to do about it? So we're here to really kind of crack open the hardest pistachio, you know, the one that doesn't have any crack at all, crack that thing open and, and discover what can we do about what we have right now, which is less than appropriate cardiac arrest response, specifically in those first two to six minutes. Yeah. And I'd love for Antra to ask her question, what she was going to ask Jeff, because I think it's a, just like a, a, a funner, a funner way to introduce somebody. Well, I mean, I've never met Jeff before. This is the first time. And since he was served in the Air Force um, and he looks to be about my brother's age, I was trying to see, even though it's a massive surface, <laughs> maybe they know each other. It is a small world, right? Anyways, welcome, Jeff. Please introduce yourself and tell us who you are and where you're from. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, hopefully you can hear me okay. So I... I probably don't know your brother unless he was stationed where I was. Although there is, you know, there's only 1% of the U.S. population that serves. So who knows? Our past may have crossed at some point or stationed near the same time. Or we were drinking in the same bar overseas, one of the two. Uh, so with that, my name is Jeff Schiller. I'm a RN. I'm uh, 
it was like, oh, I, you have your BSN. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm a, I'm a nurse. So <clears throat> I am originally joined the Air Force. I tried to go to college, not knowing what I wanted to do, didn't have money, didn't have any other money, and uh, didn't even really apply for college. So I just went to community college, joined the Air Force. I am a musician on top of being a nurse. I'm a professional drummer with Disney World and many other theme parks like Universal and SeaWorld here in Orlando, but I play professionally with other groups around the country and wherever I'm called. I guess the easiest way you can say it is I'm kind of like a musical prostitute in a way. So <laughs> if there's money, I will play. So <laughs> that's good. So with that, I tried to go in the Air Force band. I did not make it when I first went in and was became a cop in the Air Force, a security specialist. Station in Germany, had a great time doing that, toured temporary duty with the Air Force Entertainment Program for two out of the five years I was in. I met a girl who suckered me, I mean, uh, convinced me I should go to nursing school and uh, said, you'd really like it. It's kind of like being a cop, you know, and if you work in the ER, you might have a gun or a knife pulled on you. It'll have a little excitement. I go, you promise? <laughs> so I'm sure she has her ears burning every once in a while, every time I curse her name, but uh, thank you for talking me into doing this crazy job. And I uh, went to nursing school. I was stationed in Germany. Rhymeine raised as a cop and toured Europe, the UK, Mediterranean, doing music, moved to Alabama, even though I'm from Michigan originally, and my family's Canadian. That's why I might say A every once in a while. And if I get tired, I might say about. But uh, with that, we'll have, I uh, went to school at Auburn University, Montgomery, got my BSN, played in the Army National Guard band for 10 years, but five years of being, or four and a half years of being in Alabama, I got a job at Disney World and in an ICU in Orlando, actually in Kissimmee, Florida. And the next week I moved down and have been in Orlando for the last 25 years. And uh, after 10 years of being in the army band, I realized, I think I missed the professionalism of the Air Force, even though I loved what I did and got my direct commission as a nurse and was stationed in the Air Force Reserve at Homestead, a reserve base near Miami. Worked as a clinic nurse, did infection control on the side, helped with deployment physicals. It was F-16 base. It was really kind of cool working with fighter pilots. It was fun, but never really got to do anything exciting. Got sick of paperwork and decided. Now, the whole time I was working in the ER, I was doing executive physicals on the side. I was still playing with Disney World, still playing nationally, even on some events on television. And I decided I thought I'd become a flight nurse in the Air Force Reserve. So I transferred to McDill Air Force Base in Tampa and still worked as a civilian nurse and still did music on the side. And my last five and a half years. So I have 29 years total in the military. Really, if, you know, 29 years, one month and 10 days. I wasn't counting or anything. But uh, so 29 years and, and uh, my last year and a half, I was the chief nurse in my squadron, even though I was only considered the interim chief nurse. But when you do it interimly for a year and a half, you're basically doing the job. So uh, it was just time to retire after about that amount of time. And then I worked after being bedside for 22 years. I decided to try corporate education because I thought that might be fun and worked with Zoll Medical for the last almost five years and just recently resigned from there to just do music full time. And the entire time I've been a nurse for the last 12 years, um, I've always taught BLS, but decided to become an ACLS and PALS instructor 12 years ago. And have been doing that. So now I just do that on the side and play music and make my own schedule and teach people how to save lives. So it's kind of fun. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. That's kind so, of awesome. I like love musical <laughs> prostitute. That's going to be the title. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, that's what, when you're a freelance musician, you got to go where the money is. And, and, uh, and whoever books you first is who you stick with. And, yeah, that's it. You got to. 
you got to play. And when you, when you need other pimp musicians, you call them and go, Hey, are you available? And you hope they're available. So that's fun. So, so Jeff, that's just like how diverse are nurses, right? I mean, give me, give me a break. We are the most diverse, creative pivot, shifting, make it happen. Life-saving rock star machines. I mean, like here we go. Right. Every nurse I know has a side hustle. It is. Yeah. And yeah, we save lives left and right. And we all do things we love doing. And, and I don't think, you know, I think it's that passion. Plus it's a nice balance, right? I think that's what life's all about is all about a balance, trying to find something that you love doing, that you're serving the community, serving humanity. And I think that's why nurses do what we do. Yeah. I'm curious how this is going to go because like the first one we did was the OR, like an, an OR nurse and Nantra's, you know, backgrounds and she was a naval nurse and OR nurse and and it was really interesting to see like the lack of preparation, but then you did not only do this all, they had to do this all the time in your nursing career, but then you went with Zoll and you train currently how to do it right. Uh, yeah. So what a huge contrast, like people who are underprepared and people who are like the gurus. So where are you going to take yeah, this one, Susan? I... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I'm going to, I'm going to know my, my brain's going crazy with this because I know, however, like, okay, you, you instantly think of military. So you think of the dedication and you think of time spent and you think they're probably already drilling. So that'll be a cool question. Like how much did you drill, uh, you know, in your experience and, and don't start there. Cause I'm just like getting off the top of my head. These things I want to talk with you about, because again, the point of this conversation is it's, it's through the, through your lens now. So we want to talk about code blue, code blue response, how you feel about code blue from your initial training as a nurse. And then my goodness, I mean, the view of it through, through the military and then also through flight, right? Because flight has a whole, just in the OR, what a container, but flight is its own container, right? We have atmosphere, we have bubbles, we have all kinds of things up there. I mean, I did a little bit of flight nursing myself and uh, it was, it was a really cool thing. In fact, in fact, not that you guys asked, but I got my medic license because I went up to altitude one time with a medic. Um, who didn't feel the nece- necessary to bring the, the life vent with us, a patient that was just extubated from long-term. And we had to fly this patient, you know, long distance. And I was like, yeah, how about we just have it handy? <laughs> but can we, so I thought, you know, I, it's not in the scope of a nurse to intubate, but that's why I got my pedic- my, my medic license. So anyway, I digress. However, the conversation is going to look kind of sort of like this. We, we have five areas that we're going to kind of sort of try to stick to in the next 45 minutes and kind of try to keep a pace. But the first question is mindset. How did you, did you, what were your feelings about it when you, uh, Code Blue, when you first started as a nurse versus through your training and to where you are before you left the bedside? Uh, Secondly, yeah, that's a big long question. Secondly, we're going to talk about, you know, acuity, sick or not sick. What does that mean to you? I mean, what does the word acuity mean to you in in your training? Emergency equipment. Well, this is a hot topic there, Mr. Zoll. And and in fact, you have an amazing, an amazing breadth uh, and width of knowledge from from your standpoint, the military, from from a military nurse, from a flight nurse, versus someone who's been teaching in hospital, defibrillators. So that's our whole topic, defibrillator. And then rest your one, two, and three. Who's up? Right. You recognize a problem, call for help. Uh, begin compressions and and use your electricity. What does that look like in your setting? And then we'll wrap it up with you know if you've got a cool code story you want to share. If we even get that far, we usually get a little off topic. Expect it. But that's our that's our main goal. So let's dig into mindset. Give, give give us a little uh, round robin on where you started with it. Where you where you how'd you feel about it? Do you like it? Do you love it? Do you hate yeah. it? Oh my god! Okay, so uh, okay, so my first job in nursing ever was cardiovascular intensive care. 
And uh, somehow I got hired in cardiovascular intensive care in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, my, God, first day in the job, I thought, what the heck am I doing? And I still joke about it this day. I think, what am I doing? I probably should have got my real estate license. And I make that joke to this day. (laughs) I I have to stop you. I have to stop you really quick. And I'm so sorry, but I'm so glad you started with that very statement because something we learned is that, you know, honestly, it's the vulnerability of sharing truly how it makes you feel that makes this real and makes our mission really strong. So just, I, I appreciate you starting with that. So I'll, I'll hush up. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so really quick story. It, I, I, I wish I had like a public speaking engagement where I could tell the story and not to slam the nurses that I worked with in that CBICU because they were brilliant. They were really, really good. I just must've caught them on a very bad day, my first day. Uh, so, you know, when you're first hired as a nurse and you're a baby nurse, now I had already been a cop for five years. I'd been through Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I had toured Europe playing music twice, the U- Europe, UK, Mediterranean. I, I felt like I was pretty experienced, was in school, was in the National Guard, got through school, somehow never thought I'd ever go to college and somehow got a BSN. Uh, and thank God for the awesome instructors at Auburn, but they were uh, amazing. And my first day on the job, uh, you have a week of training you have a week of orientation you're supposed to do in a new hire class. And I asked the manager, I said, so this class starts at eight. You know, I know nurses, we usually start at like what, 645, right? So what should I do before? And she said, you know, it'd be great since I hired all five of you. Maybe you should just come in early that day, come in like you normally would go to the unit, review standard operating procedures, like the emergency procedures we do. That way, if you come in the first day and we have a code, you might be like, oh yeah, cool. Okay, great. So brand new nurse day one, got my little, you know, I said, well, what should I wear? I said, oh, just wear your business casual, you know, khakis, golf shirt, you'll be fine. I'm like, okay, great. Show up, clock in, walk in the unit. There's some nurse in a room and this guy that I've never met who looks like he had been up for probably two days and was binge drinking. I don't know, but he's on, on the phone and he's talking. He's got a big scraggly beard and he looks at me. He's eyeing me up and down. He's on the phone and I, I kind of wave like, hi. He gets done talking on the phone. He hangs up. He looks at me and he says, who the F are you? And did not just say the letter of. And I go, hi, my name's Jeff. I'm the new nurse that's uh, starting. I'm supposed to go to orientation at eight, but I was told to come see some standard operating procedures. So where would these books be that I could read? And he goes, where are your scrubs? And I said, I, I don't have scrubs. I was told to wear, oh, you need scrubs to work in here. So he calls the phone. He calls OR and goes, OR, this is Rodney CBI. We got a nurse that forgot to wear scrubs to work. And I'm like, no, I, I didn't forget work. I didn't forget scrubs. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes, okay, go get the scrubs down the elevator. And I go down to the elevator <laughs> and the guy opens the door with some scrubs and he goes, oh, forgot to wear your scrubs. Uh, no, no, I didn't. I was supposed to, okay. And I'm thinking, I was a cop. Maybe this is a shakedown. It's just a shakedown, just to see where I'm at. Just messing with me. Maybe this is like a little hazing. I'll go with it. That's cool. I get scrubs on. I throw my stuff in a locker in the OR. I walk back up and I go, okay, so I got my scrubs on. I got to leave in about a half an hour, but where's the SOPs that I should review? And he goes, I don't know anything about SOPs, but there's your patient. Ask if you have any questions. Uh, is that a ventilator? Because I've never worked. He goes, well, this is a brand new cabbage. It just had it. We don't have a nurse. So this is your patient. And I'm like, you know, you know, I haven't taken the NCLEX yet, right? Like I'm a graduate nurse. This is my first day. I'm supposed to be at an orientation at eight. He goes, I don't know where you're supposed to be, but that's your patient. Here's how you take vital signs. Take the vital signs. Go.
okay, so what do I do now? And so <laughs> I just start taking vital signs and I'm like, well, this is crazy. The ventilator starts making a noise. I'm like, is it supposed to make that noise? Yeah, it makes that noise. Just go back in there. Uh, okay, okay. About 7.40, I'm like, well, hey, well, that was fun. Okay, I got to go change clothes and get to the other side of the hospital for this orientation. Uh, I guess I'll see you. He goes, you can't leave. That That's your patient. If you leave, that's patient abandonment, and they will fire you today on your first day. And I went, wow, this, is, this isn't a shakedown. This guy's serious. I guess I just don't get orientation. Okay, I'll, I, I've learned to learn on the job. I'll just do that. That's fine. Cool. So I sit there in about five to eight. I'm like, you're sure I can't leave? He goes, nope, you can't leave. This is your patient. If you leave, you're going to get fired. Okay. So I'm taking patient. I'm taking vital signs at eight. I'm just sitting around. Other nurses walk in. Nobody's saying hi to me at all. I'm like, well, this is stupid. <laughs> and a manager walks in about 830 and go, hey, Rodney. Hey, Sue. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sue. Jeff, what are you what are you doing here? Jeff, you're supposed to be an oriented. Why are you wearing scrubs? Rodney, what is he here doing here? taking care of this patient. Jeff, why, Rodney, why is he wearing scrubs and why is he taking care of a patient? He's supposed to be in orientation. And I quote, well, he didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jeff, go put your clothes. Do you have clothes? Did you bring clothes or you just show up in scrubs? No, I have clothes. They're in the OR. Go get your clothes. I'll make a call. I'll see if we can keep your job. They called me and said you didn't show up and they were going to fire you because you didn't show up day one. I'll see if you can still work. Oh my God. So I go down to the orientation and... And they said, uh, here you go. Uh, here's your clothes. And I go down there. Now, the head nurse of this hospital used to wear all whites, all white with the hat, because that's how she felt nurses should dress. Now, this was 1997, and no one wore whites anymore, but she did. And, uh, of course, she's talking to the entire uh, group, an entire group. Of, and I, I go to open the door, and, of course, the door's locked. I knock on the door. Of course, she stops, looks at her watch, shakes her head, and says, open the door. Guy opens the door. One of the guys that I was hired with, all five, none of them came that early that morning. One of the guys goes, oh, you're really late, dude. I go, yeah. And she goes, oh, are you Jeff? Wow, you're really late. We'll talk about this afterwards. Have a seat. I'm like, that was day one of nursing. Then I was not supposed to touch a patient for three months. I was promised critical care courses. I would be a preceptor. I'd go through all this training before I even touched a patient. We had a critical care course. The next week, you're supposed to start the day I showed up on that Monday. The nurse that was given it said, well, we're supposed to do a critical care course, but I'm just letting you know I quit. So I'm leaving. Bye. Uh, you're going to be released back to your unit. And uh, and yeah, good luck. See ya. And she left. And we're like, okay. So we go back to our unit. No critical care course. No training. Here's your preceptor. Ask him any questions. Of course, my preceptor was, I'll never get her name, was Jill. She was really awesome. And, you know, and, and trying to deal with a newbie who didn't know anything. And uh, she was awesome. And the manager, to her credit. But the issue was the full six months I worked there was crazy. I saw a code. If you code, the very first code I'll never forget was a, I think she was 87 or 89-year-old lady that had a cabbage times five. That's a quintuple bypass. She's 87. She lived a good life. <laughs> I will never forget. I was like. Why would they? I'm just thinking in my head. If I live to 87 and my heart has a little blockage, I, well, my cards were up. It was a, it was a fun run, right? <laughs> what is an open heart surgery going to do? Would it give me another two years, maybe? And uh, debilitated so anyway, this, two years. Uh, yeah. So this uh, this lady 
was trending down. Like you can, with adults, it's great. You can kind of see them circling the toilet. Coaster, her family was there. She was not a DNR. And the other nurse, like, we got to make her a DNR. We got to make her a DNR because she's not going to make it if she dies. I'm like, I don't think she was going to make it anyway. It was two months. She, her last two months of her life, she lived in her ICU and it was horrible. And I'll never forget when she was basically dying. We, they were signing the DNR. And uh, it was really sad. And I remember telling the family, I'm like, she didn't make it. And of course, they're like, oh, dying and it's their mom. I get it. You know, and these people were 60 something. And here I am, 20, you know, five going, <laughs> and, you know, and I just kind of, I had a whole kind of different mindset of it, right? Like, like just, a, and it, I don't say it jaded me, but it, it kind of made me realize, you know, life's fragile and it's great she lived that long. And of course, this was 1997. Gosh, she was born in like 1910. It's pretty good life. And I uh, lived a lot, saw a lot. And then as I eventually got floated to the ER, I left that job, got a job offer in Florida and moved six months later down to Florida, got a job at Disney, immediately started working. They said they were going to do open heart surgery, brand new hospital, only brand new nurse for six months. And uh, the person that hired me, who interviewed me, who ironically went to nurse practitioner school with my wife at University of Florida. Of course, I wasn't married at the time, but she she quit the day I started. So when I started my second job, the person that hired me was no longer there. And they were like, who are you again? Who hired? Oh, well, we don't have a CVICU. We're supposed to do that. And that's what you're hired for. So you're just going to work in this ICU. And again, no training. All I knew were open hearts. That's all I knew. And I wasn't even really good at that, only being a baby nurse for six months. And uh, had to learn regular ICU stuff, which was really kind of a little more involved, a lot more stuff going on. And they would do things that I would normally do, like, oh, the patient's blood pressure is this. What do you think we should turn off? I'm like, I think we should call the doctor because I'm not touching, turning anything until I talk to a doctor. Because if you did that with a CV ICU patient, the cardiac surgeon would have your head on a spike yeah. in the middle of the unit. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy. I, I, was, I was just going to say as master of ceremonies, like, I found myself like, what happens next? <laughs> you know, you, yeah, we we should we'll just have you on the podcast so we can hear all about those kinds of stories. But to kind of circle back, yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah. to so it sounds like you started off your career. Well, you went from the military where it's professional, it's regimented, there's training, there's drilling, there's this, and then you start in a nurse as an ICU, and it's just like you're thrown to the wolves, and there's no standard operating procedure. Yeah, you're on your own. There's no care, yeah. whatever. And then, yeah. so take us forward into kind of give us a little arc of okay, that's how yeah, it started. Got it and thrown into the ER to float, fell in love with it, and I found to codes like your your yeah. So yeah. and that's what happened in the ER is where you work the most codes. I found in right. my, my career uh, because they come in coding or they're very very critical and they code right there where you're there. And those codes, thank God, in the ER they're very we're right there on top of it. We're monitoring them. We're right there on top of it. It was a professional team that knew what they were doing. They knew how to do it. But I'll tell you the first time I ever had to do code in the ER and I'll never forget this. My buddy Zaid, I, I, you know, anytime I've had a code and I've been either fortunate or cursed to have a lot, not because I was ignoring my patients, just because that's for the environment I was in. <laughs> Somebody like, well, what'd you do to your patients? I'm like, Hey, Hey, I was on top of it. They, they were just, it was their time to go. And uh, I'll never forget doing CPR. And I'm in my own SVT, right? I'm in my own, my heart is just beating a million miles a minute here. And and I'm like, oh my God. And I start doing compressions. And my buddy's IED is like, okay, bro, we slow down, slow down, slow down, take your time, take it. It's way too fast. You're not going deep enough. 
take a breath, take a breath, come on, slow down. And he would coach me through. He's like, we got this, we got this. It's going to be good. We got this team. Rest of the team's here. Hey man, I'm like, Hey, somebody get the defib. He's like, yeah, you got it, bro. And he, he started kind of teaching me to be the team lead until the doctor could come in. And it was really cool. And then over time you start working them until you finally have your first pediatric code and then you're absolutely devastated. Okay, Jeff, uh, let's not go to pediatric codes because right now we're getting everybody like weeping in the first yeah, know, few yeah. minutes we're not of our do podcast that one yet, here. I'll start but, crying So you, yeah. you, you've mentioned a few things I'd like to kind of pull out of, of what you've shared so far. Lack of training. I mean, brand new nurse starting out in CVICU, that's a tough environment, right? Those nurses in there have got like 8,500 drips and they know yeah. everything down to the minuscule milliliter of an ounce of a gram of whatever. I mean, I yeah. coming from the from the trauma ER where we mash fluids into them like crazy. I did a little stint in the CVICU and I was like, you gotta put your fluids on a pump. And they were like, ooh. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you thought I was like a really trash talking. But my very first patient, my very first patient, my very first day as a nurse in the trauma ER was a cardiac arrest. And my very first patient. My very first compressions on a human was a little, you know, 90 pound old gal soaking wet and crunch. It was my first experience with hand placement. I mean, it's not funny, but it's, you know, you don't have to worry about where you put placement after that, right? Because there's a perfect right. dish and, and there you right. have it. So pretty traumatic for me. So here you go. You start out in, in a in, with a crazy, we, we could go on and on about lack of training uh, in general as nurses, as we get thrown into units, whether no matter where we work. But specifically cardiac arrest. So you said you've been a BLS training trainer for a while. You just recently brought on ACLS and PALS. I know you were in the military. You you, you had a crazy yeah. start, and then you then you transgressed your uh, your career into you know training in hospitals. So I kind of like a, from 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 doing cardiac arrest, and I know in in a military standpoint, I was recently uh, speaking to somebody in the military, and they said it's an interesting thing when you're doing it in the field, right? So it's really, it's really field, field cardiac arrest is so much different, whether you be mm -hmm. EMS in the air or out in a, a, a zone, uh, if you will, where you're working yeah. in the field. But those same people like you, you have training, very, very condensed training in the military. What was that like? What was your training in the military specifically about cardiac arrest? Yeah. So, I mean, as a, flight nurse, you train all the time. You're training, all. you're always doing real training missions. You're always working with sim men on the aircraft and you're always doing simulated codes all the time, all the time. And it's always the patient on the highest tier, uh, you know, different stack tiers. Uh, thank God we had a great team of instructors and evaluators and people that were, I guess, clinical coordinators that would give you the scenarios. I mean, as, as, I've always been an ACLS and PALS provider my entire career, PLS. And then 12 years ago was when I became an instructor. So by the time I became a flight nurse, I had been instructing for years, teaching and knew all the codes and it was, you know, all the algorithms and whatnot. I still struggled with, you know, it's still because in the moment you, you panic, right? You still have your own little, your heart skips a beat every time. Oh, this is happening. Okay, let's do this. And you have to focus. And uh, one thing friend of mine taught me a long time ago that was a flight nurse for a civilian hospital. He said, said this, I have my own SVT. And, but if I have a patient that's coding, uh, whether it's a traumatic, maybe they're Brady or they're tacky and they're unstable. I have to physically say they're unstable Brady or unstable tacky because then it centers me. And then I know exactly what I'm doing, what algorithm I'm on and what I have to follow. 
And then when they code, I would say, okay, that's VFib or Pulses VTAC or Asystole or PEA. And I have to know it. And you get to the point to where it just becomes second nature. Now it, it's not perfect. It's not like we're the super experts. American Heart discusses teams like this as high performance teams. And that's what we teach when we teach, as you know, ACLS, BLS, and we talk about the high performance teams. And thank God they put together an amazing, amazing video on that for American Heart, where they're talking about high performance teams, how they do things differently. Instead of saying clear in the hospital, when you say clear in the hospital, what does everybody do? Their hands up, hands up, okay, okay. And they back away 10 feet, right? And they, they're like, oh, we're going to clear. And they, they think they're going to get shocked. And then someone's afraid to, 25 years ago, Wait. first time I ever pushed it, I was afraid to touch the defibrillator. But then when they shock, they go, okay, oh, is it okay to do CPR now? Yeah, do CPR. You sure? I'm not going to get shocked? Yeah, we already pushed the button. You just please get back on the chest. In the military, we do what high performance teams do. Clear, you hover. You're hovering that far over the chest. You're ready. If you did a great job in skin prep and the pads were put on properly, there's no chance of an electrical arc, if, unless you screwed it up some way. And and we say clear once. You got shocked. That was your own stupid fault. Sorry. That's the way it goes. Next time you'll learn, right? So <laughs> then uh, you're back on the chest. You do all the things like pre-charging the defibrillator that American Heart talks about. Those defibs, both of them, life back and Zol, will hold the shock for 60 seconds. It's not going to deliver the shock unless you push the button. It's just like a gun. It's not going to fire unless you push, pull the trigger. So same thing. So I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. Go for it. Susan. No, 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 no. I'm just, uh, this is good stuff because what you're talking about is, is something that comes up when I teach code prep, right? So in general, the ED and ICU, they always forever say to me, all right, like what, and we talked about this in our, in our, with our last guest uh, from the, from the OR, it was like, okay, so when are we going to get to the critical care stuff? When are you going to get to the critical care stuff? Like, we're like, we hear you talking about the first, you know, two to six minutes, but you know, we're, we kind of do this all the time and, and we're ready. And I always say, as soon as you can show me those first two to six minutes, like rock stars, like recognize the problem, call for help, begin compressions, use your electricity, which includes, as you described, shocking, but, and then they say, well, what, and they generally can't do it. They generally cannot do it. And that's not like a well-oiled machine. They generally can't do it. They do it the oh crap method. A lot of people in the critical care, I call it the, the hospital like a hamburger, right? The ICU on the top, the middle of the hospital uh, top bun, and the ED is the bottom bun. But you described more of the advanced things we do. If we can get to minute six, like well-oiled machines, we will hover. We will pre-charge. We will do bonus round compressions, you know, yeah. while the defibrillator is charging. And even just those three tasks tend to be very challenging for in hospital, in hospital, anything, and whether you're ED, ICU or anyway, I, I don't teach it in the middle of the hospital because not until they code prep for a while, the basics, to, can they grasp it? Because everyone is afraid of that machine. Absolutely. Well, I would say too, from my experience in the military is that what the military does, even if they run you through advanced life support, all those, like they did that with all of us, everybody got that tra training as a nurse where I was, but we were practicing all the time. So we were always doing codes. So for me, like we were getting basic life support, right? We were, we were doing all the things. I would have walked into a room with a patient, you know, who was coding and I would have felt at least more comfortable than what I got in the civilian sector because we were practicing all the time. It didn't matter who you were, if you were a tech, if you were a corpsman, if you were, you were, you were practicing codes. You're practicing codes in the OR and the recovery room and on the med surge floor. So it it I you know I don't know that the emphasis in my experience was you know one two three and four like those really quick steps, but at least we were doing something. 
at least we were, you know, which that was not the case in the civilian sector. So, yeah, I've well, responded to many codes where you get to a certain uh, floor and I'm not going to pick which one, but you get to a floor and you, you're the code team and you run up there and you, you because we weren't allowed to take the elevator, we had to run up the steps. So we get up the steps, we get to the floor. Where's the code? I was at the end of the hallway. Of course it is. So you run to the end of the hallway and there's a nurse standing outside the room and like, where's the code? Oh, it's in there. Where's the team? Where is everybody? Where's the crash cart? Well, you guys are the code team. Well, you can oh, oh just go get the code cart. <laughs> you jump in and they do like, oh, we called a code. We're not sure. I don't think we can do CPR. You have a BLS card. <laughs> you were trained to do BLS. Why can't you do it? And uh, this is how we met. This is how we met, uh, you know, Jeff and I, because I mean, again, what is going on? <laughs> How can yeah. we all take BLS? How can we all be healthcare providers? It doesn't matter whether we're nurses or not. Respiratory, radiology, PT, OT. I mean, we, the, everyone has a BLS card. It, we all know what it we're goes, supposed to do. Yeah. It goes back to the, I, I just gave this example today, teaching ACLS. Uh, Buffalo Bills game we all watched where Hamlin coded, Damar Hamlin coded. And do you all know who did CPR on him? Do you guys mm -hmm. know? It the, was actually one of the trainers. One of the trainers. That's not, right. Not a, not an EMT, not a paramedic, not the team doctor. One of the trainers went out because they thought he was just injured and they're going to check him out. Like, oh, it's probably got a muscle cramp. Oh, he's not breathing. Hmm. He doesn't have a pulse. I'm going to start CPR and yell for help. If it wasn't for him doing immediate CPR, Mar Hamlin would be dead. And he did it for about 30 minutes. And then when they brought the AED, they had to shock him. He was in cardiac arrest in a shock. And then when they got him, I mean, if it wasn't for that trainer, he would be dead. And that trainer is not a medic. That trainer probably just had BLS heart saver. And that's all he had, the basic BLS. But he did everything that Susan's code prep did. Early recognition, early response, high quality compressions over football pads, for God's sake. Professional football pads are big and over. They're not even touching the skin. He was, you know, jamming on him to get some kind of CPR. And it... You know, it goes so much in depth of just doing CPR, but high quality CPR to there. But he did enough to keep him alive and keep him perfused. And even on our best day of CPR, you know, American Heart, we always say you want early defibrillation because that's the highest priority, right? If you have a, if you're not doing proper CPR, your heart's not perfused. You're only, and if you're doing proper CPR, your heart, if you've been down for a while, is only perfusing about 25 to 30% of its capability. But once you recognize cardiac arrest, and it is a shock of a rhythm, and I just said this today and yesterday teaching, that heart, that's the most that heart will ever be perfused in the process of the code. If the code lasts 10 minutes, that first minute of the code is the most that heart will ever be perfused. So early proper CPR, just to keep that perfusion up a little bit while you're getting some electricity and that early shock to get it going, that's the most, and a well-perfused heart will shock better. Every minute that goes by, the chance of survival decreases by 10%. So that that trainer, man, he's the hero. He's the real hero. Hero, <laughs> hero Mac Daddy status. I, I'm really, really excited that you brought up the pads because earlier we were talking about, or, they're not regular compressions. You said high quality. So jam up compressions to, to feed the brain. Goody in, garbage out. Through football pads, right? The guy is sitting up talking, joining the American Heart Association, joining the CPR, uh, you know, crusade. And that's what this is. That's what code prep is. That's why we're here. This is a back to the basics crusade. Like we're not doing the basics and we're not in the military. 
we don't have the, the well, many of us are not, you know, and have the benefit of this continuous training, which is, let's face it, right? If the military is doing it, it's the right thing to do, <laughs> right? If the military is doing yes. it, we, <laughs> and, we know that it's the right thing to do. <laughs> so if it's the right thing to do, our military agrees, and humans don't really know, the human heart and the cardiac heart doesn't know whether we're in the military or not. I mean, we it, it just follows through that it's the right thing to do everywhere. Yet in healthcare, which is this ginormous industry, we all know it's the right thing to do, but we're still not at the standard of care. We do the minimum standard. We get renewed on our basic um, life support once every two years and have random, at best, bomb mock codes. If you don't happen to be on that unit that day, then you don't even get that code, right? Because they're random and quarterly or, or whatever they do for their accreditation. So let's talk about emergency equipment because I know that you are very familiar with defibrillators. In your opinion, from your work, not only training as an American Heart Association instructor, but as a, a representative for one of the largest well-known defibrillators in the world, what is your take on nurses' comfort level with their emergency equipment, specifically their, their, their defibrillator? Overall, they're scared of it. They're afraid to touch it because I was afraid to touch it. I, and I know that they have that fear because they look at it and there's so many controls, there's so many buttons. They don't, I, what if I hit the wrong one? What if I shock someone? They're afraid to do something. And again, that takes training and the comfort of knowing what it is. When we train at the training center, we have people do everything. We have them pace, we have them defibrillate, we have them synchronize cardiovert, we have them play with other buttons to see what it does. When I trained with Zoll, we offered hour-long classes where we had defibs and mannequins set up in the pads and we had them go through everything. And at the very end, I would wrap it up and say, okay, look, if your patient's going to code, what color zone are you going to turn to? And what if you, what button are you going to push if you don't think it's shockable? And how are you going to put these pads on and, and just cover the highlights of it just to recap it. And, uh, but I know when we left, it took them a while for those defibrillators to go live. And every hospital I trained at probably over 400 hospitals. And I, I always wondered how much recurring training they had from the super users that I trained. Like I trained Susan as a super user and her and her team have trained many and tried to teach them not to be afraid of this defibrillator, this equipment. But it's the same thing where using life pack defibrillators, right? So we're in our training center because the hospital I'm affiliated with uses defibrillator. I don't really care what you use. I just don't want you to be afraid to touch it. <laughs> I want you to be able to know what it is and know that it's a tool to help you to save that life. And you're, but, but again, that gets into the, right? Because you still get people, even though like ACLS, we have them do BLS in the beginning during an ACLS class to have them demonstrate they know BLS skills. It's not to sign them off. Can you Paul, scan for breathing, recognize there's not, call for help, do CPR for two minutes straight while you're waiting for an A&D to show up. And if you can do that, that's awesome. And really, that's all you really need to do. But then when we get them in the classroom with our separate groups and we've got our defibrillator and our algorithms and a crash cart full of drugs and all this other fun stuff, all of a sudden it's a different level. And what do they forget most? They forget to check a pulse, scan for breathing. They forget their basic BLS assessment everything that every single nurse is required to have the ELS healthcare provider. And they forget these simple little things. Even if a patient is unresponsive, Hey, Mr. Smith, are you okay? Hmm. 
he's not talking to me. And I want to scream out of my head, hey, how about you check a pulse and scan for breathing? <laughs> because they're thinking like, oh, I wonder what algorithm I should follow. How about you just check a pulse scan for breathing? Let's start there. And then they would, and they start getting used to it again. And like, okay, so, so I have to employ both. And I'm like, yeah, you do. <laughs> so so, so Jeff, you're, you're bringing up something that is a big, uh, a big point for us here. And it's that psychological safety, um, not only in the clinical setting, but in the, in the classroom. So I find that this in my research, and, and I'll ask your opinion on this, but that psychological safety and the lack thereof in our training translates all the way to the clinical setting, right? So if you're not really comfortable in, and again, you know, I was the director of American Heart Association for a large healthcare system, like 50,000 people went through my classroom in the last handful of years. Everyone's scared to death. They're, they're, in my opinion, they're scared to death in, in a code. They're scared to death worrying about a code. They're scared to death thinking about worrying about a code. They're scared to death going to class. They, they do a Hail Mary. They don't want to go back for two years, thank God. You know, and so how how and when is this supposed to sink into a point where you're good enough to respond to a code, whether it be in your living room or at your job, right? Because we know they hate their ACLS, BLS, and PALS classes, most of them. Some of them, I mean, there's a small group that are like, I got this, I do this all the time, this is so dumb. But the rest of them are like fearful. And so we know it's not sinking in. Then they go to work yeah. and we're not asking them to actually perform this for another two whole years. And then there's yeah. a code. Or if they do the three-month checkoff, if they just do CPR for 30 seconds, they're checked off. I'm like, okay, that was good. You're good. And go well, back to your unit. And, and so with that, you just said it. Those who are come in and they're, are, they're experienced, they're used to it, they do it all the time. For me, it was a matter of doing them all the time. And it was a matter of training. And, and so ER, we had crazy codes. And, and then we, in the military... We train so much to recognize predictive hemodynamics, predictive vital signs, or the situation that was happening. So we were able to prevent the code, but we would train. So uh, a little side note, I'm also a private pilot, even though I haven't flown in a while, but because I was in the Air Force and worked with a lot of pilots, my flight instructor, he always said, you know, flying is 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. So we're going to train for 1% <laughs> sheer terror. And I think exactly codes are like that. It is 99. So as a flight nurse, when you get your check ride, because you have to get a check ride, you take a written, you take an oral exam, and then you have to do uh, a check ride on an aircraft. You also do what's called an emergency performance exam, an EPE. And pilots get this too. Pilots, when they do their EPE, they don't just take off and do touch and goes. They take off and go, okay, all your engines out, or what are you going to do at 30,000 feet in a big KC-135? Okay, or, or you know, you got a, a C-17, a huge cargo aircraft. All your engines are out, what are you going to do? And they will pull the engines to idle. Really expensive aircraft at 35,000 feet, just tumbling out of the air. And we have to do this as flight nurses. Okay, here's your critical equipment. We have four pieces of critical equipment. We're going to train on this. You're going to know it backwards and forwards. And if you tell me one thing wrong during the CPE, you fail. Okay, your patient just vomited. What are you going to do? Tell me about the suction. What are you going to do with the suction? And you have to do it. Talk about the warnings and cautions. You go on and on. You train, you train, you train, you train. But you get so used to it that when it does happen or you need it, you're just kicking into rote memory of, okay, I got this. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And it's the people that don't do it enough, the people that don't think about it. They, you know, yeah. we have to know so much as nurses, medically, physiologically, pharmacologically, skills. Like we always used to base ourselves on skills, but can you start an IV? Can you start a Foley? Can you put an NG tube in? Do you know how to check a pulse and scan for breathing? How about that one? <laughs> That's what's going to save the life. So, 
the the take home message is training, 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 Karen. Yep. Yeah, I it's, it's so funny that this kid that I'm seeing this all over the place now. A friend of mine, Andre knows him, Rob Cook. He was also in the Air, Air Force, and then I don't know he was in uh, special forces and I'm security details. I'm and all no, oh, no, I wasn't saying you did. <laughs> but he was over here last night, and he was telling us about in his unit he was in. Whenever they had a disagreement, uh, there there were gloves, like two sets of gloves in you know in the corner in the like wherever there were two sets of gloves everywhere and the commander or whoever was leader said to get out like and just end it and it was a physical fight and i'm like wait there's women in the military he's like that's right and i'm wow. like huh and what branch was he in that's awesome i wish we did that in the air force, air force. well <laughs> he's well i don't know where he was stationed but I, I can't remember where it was but we got into this discussion last night and, and it has it's like very similar to this and he said what got me over hitting a woman because it was required according to the policy of that thing, uh, you know, and, and she did too. He's like, some of those, some of those women you didn't want to get hit by, <laughs> but he said, friends of better, my, my unit, I would not want to get hit by them. <laughs> yeah. He said better that the first time you get hit is not your first fight. And because you know what to do. And it's like for that, it's the nurse's responsibility to know a little bit about stress physiology, you know, and knowing and be responsible for your own brain, because if you're stressed because you don't know what to do and you go into fight or flight mode and all that energy and blood is shunted to your reptilian brain that goes, run away, run away, instead of being able to go, okay, I'm stressed, but I know what to do because yeah. that shuts it off. That shuts off your sympathetic response when you can use language with your prefrontal cortex and, you know, turn the energy here to go, all right, I know what to do airway breathing circulation or it's not that anymore right it's not <laughs> i remember when i was a young nurse. no it's it's still that, airway breathing circulation well that's, that's saved when you me. do your assessment yeah that saved me that simple thing i was my first job was cvicu2 new brand new nurse no trade your your story was so similar to mine but my preceptor <laughs> mark lessman said whenever you freak out abc abc yeah. that according and that will prioritize your drips you know, you got right. nonpride, you got epi, you got norepinephrine. We're ABC. They breathing? Okay. You know, they're like, go back to ABCs. And that I think is actually the first step. Like Susan, mindset, that is critical, you know, and you're yeah. responsible for your mindset. How do you improve your mindset to get yourself in a, oh, just to be able to do that and not freak out? That's your responsibility. And that comes with training. And if you're not get it, getting it, you got to demand it. Brilliant, brilliant. And in, in code prep, we actually have a deep, I have a breath. It's a deep breath. <laughs> code prep coaches say, okay, everybody. Okay. And you know, I, I, I literally have a, a slide in there where they were like this. It's the nurse. Because honestly, you need to disengage that lower brain, connect to your upper brain where performance is hidden. And let's, let's do this. And, and you are not going to access it if you don't do it you have to you have to take note you have just exactly mm. like you just described with language you can turn that off and turn this on but not without practice performance does not come without practice and we're not even asking for jam up high performance like the military i mean i would love it but i'm talking about general performance of basic life support steps and they're there for us to do and we're not doing them so so you did bring up a point earlier and you know i i, I skipped past acuity so and we, we're running out of time but well you know that sick or not sick thing we did talk about i mean the best cardiac arrest well, is the one on this on this topic let Antra chime in because we haven't please. heard her voice no, no, it's, it's, but, keep going it's okay no it's, no please 
No, yeah. just mix it up. We need to hear your voice. Say what yeah. you're saying. I was just going to say, I find it so fascinating because all of you guys have been in those areas, ICU, trauma, flight, whatever. And I just think it's so interesting that, you know, all of you are like, you do it every day in that, in that, um, on that unit or on the, whatever. And you, you, you know that it saves lives and you know that, that you can get through it and you can do it. And yet there's such zero common sense that we don't do it on like a med surge floor or like, it just makes zero sense to me because yeah. you guys are living proof that the more you do it, the more comfort. I mean, I'm listening to all your stories and you're, you're, you're like, Oh yeah, I, I, I know what to do. I know how to get through this. Yet we like, why are we leaving out all of these? See, I knew that was important. Andrea. Yeah. Well, it's also not just doing compressions more often. It's the, ABC assessment. It's the, let me check a pulse scan for breathing. It's that, it's that training of learning what to do, when to do it. Not just, oh, I'm going to go show I can do CPR for 30 seconds and I'm good for three months. Awesome. Great. And they go away and then they come back another three months, never working a code and not what once even thinking about it because they work on a med surge floor or they work on a, I know when I had to float to a med surge floor, I was like, wow, these Patients are really tough because I don't have all these cool monitors to see what's going on with the patient, but I can see how you get used to not thinking that way because you're thinking meds, you're thinking, making sure I got the right med for the right person, not what if they code. But it's a systems issue, right? It's a problem with the system because every nurse does not... Every nurse I have ever talked to would does not want to be caught in a code with your pants down. <laughs> like, come on, let's yeah. just... It's yeah. so interesting, like listening to you guys is like, gosh, like you guys, you know how to do it and you do it. And maybe it gives you, you know, SVT and, but you still, un, you still understand the basics and you still know how to escalate to the higher levels when you need to, et cetera, et cetera. But we leave like med surge and, you know, these other units just like, okay, well, if you can get a code practice in once every three months, you're good to go. Like that doesn't even make any sense. I, two, yeah. two things that, that you just said, Andre, just, just reminded me. First of all, the European Resuscitation Union, their slogan is system saving lives. That's the first thing that came to mind when you were system saving lives is their slogan. And they push that all over Europe. And then secondly, what came to mind when you were speaking is people don't realize, do you realize the percentage of hospital space that is taken up by the inpatient environment? <laughs> I mean, it, ED and ICU is like 10%. All the nurses so, that aren't being trained. all of our patients, all of our parents, and all of our families that are not in the ED or ICU are in the between the hamburger buns. You know, ICU is the top bun, ER is the bottom bun. The whole middle burger is is where these low frequency, high risk events occur primarily. And don't, let's not even get into the whole night shift, right? Cardiac arrest yeah, works. On night. And another fact, it, right now, post pandemic, post blah, blah, blah. But you know, about 80% of our nursing workforce are two, two years or less being a nurse, like yeah. 80%. And, and because of COVID, you know, in ICUs, it was always one to two, one to two. You only had two patients. That was it. Uh, you could help your buddies out. But then during COVID, everybody was short staffed. Everybody was quitting. Everybody was doing travel jobs. Like, well, you know, the ER takes care of three or four ICU nurses. Why can't our ICU nurses take care of three or four? So now most ICUs are three patients and or three to one. So nursing, one, we're short staffed because, you know, nobody wants to go into it. I know there's people like, 
that we joke about getting a real estate license and people are like, ah, I was trying to do this, but I think I'm just going to go get my nursing license. Like, oh yeah, because working at Home Depot didn't work out. So let's go save lives. Yeah. Awesome. So they ended up, you know, they're very, 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 very overwhelmed, underpaid, extremely underpaid, undervalued. And then we're asking them to care about the quality of their work and Hey, in a code, we also need it. So there is a huge, like Asha just said, there is a huge system issue. Uh, it always blows me away. They can afford to pay a traveler 75 to $85 an hour, but the nurse that's been there for 20 years, they're just still paying them 31 or 32 and uh, no bonuses, no nothing. You know, the hospital got all these great, not, I'm not naming a hospital, but I remember somebody making a joke like, Oh yeah, we got all this money from the government to help with COVID relief. And, some director of nursing was talking to the CEO and said, awesome, what are you going to do? Hire more nurses? He goes, no. Well, you're going to like provide more training and open up a new wing and hire more nurses there? No. Well, what are you going to do? Get contract nurses? No. Nope. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I bought this sign that says heroes work here. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so with that, how do we convince those that are underpaid, undervalued, overworked, overstressed to say it's tough because those of us that work in critical care environments always have treated our patients like families, but how do we get those people that are just doing it with very, very limited training to no training and only a minimal requirement of training to say, I need you to step your game up and be ready to wear that superhero cape. And, well, Jeff, that's a perfect segue to wrap this up. You know, your your expertise and your experience, I really appreciate you bringing it into, to, into this conversation with us, but I think that's a perfect way to wrap this up. Like, it's something that I've just started saying is I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm going to give them permission. I am the permission that I'm declaring it. And, and you guys, as my team members, you're declaring it with me. I'm, I'm no longer asking. I'm, I'm, I'm done being in a system, in a system that is only committed to doing the bare minimum. Our patients are dying because we have lack of training. And to your point, I think those new nurses, if asked, would beg for this brief training, for their own, if it's not for the system that that's not going to do it for themselves, I'm going to recommend that Absolutely. nurses do it for themselves, for themselves, so they can walk to work. I used to go over, I've overbridged when I was a new nurse, overbridged into the trauma ER. I would pray, 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 Lord, please give me the strength to know what to do and the power the to thing. do it Should when I get there. Yep. And, and but that's that's so lonely and scary. Back to our psychological safety. I mean, I want more training. I know nurses want more training. I'm here to bring it to them. That's why we're here. That's why I love yeah. you guys, and I, I appreciate your insight. And this is why we're kickstarting not only our hearts, uh, but the hearts of nurses across our nation and 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 world. And we, we're going to give them the permission to be strong. And and yeah. frankly, if, if they're strong in this area, they can be strong in any area. Karen, what do we say to the old corporate curmudgeons? <laughs> you're fired. Yeah, I'll suck at this and you're fired. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's a wrap, Jack. Any closing words, team? I was just going to say thank you, Jeff. Thank you, all of you. It was interesting to hear, like, as the outside person in those units. You know, I have been in the military, so I had that benefit of having all that practice, practice, practice. But then going to the civilian world and seeing like we don't do, sh well, we don't do Stuff. poop outs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's cool to listen to you guys talk about it and, and from your perspective. So that was a neat lens for me to hear. Yeah. I, I you know? thank you, Jeff. That was it, it going from the OR, the first one to somebody yeah. who's like, oh, underprepared, undertrained to overprepared, over, you know, like 
But yeah. it was interesting when Jeff was talking about his Zoll training on the, you know, when he did Zoll training on the, the floors and the different places. And uh, how about we uh, check for responsiveness and uh, like star compression, like that simple thing. Uh, there is a stigma because it's not the nurse's fault. They're underprepared. It's the systems. It's the fault of the system because they're underprepared so that people like Jeff who do this all the time go, uh, how about we do this? Like, like it's a duh, but it's not a duh to them. It, yeah. it should never be a duh. Like it is a yeah, duh it's just not to them. Top of mind, right? Yeah. No. It, and it, what happens when it happens in Sonny's barbecue or at Walmart yeah. or wherever or in your own home? Standardized practices, you know, drillers make killers. Standard, but in the opposite way. In a like, good way. Yeah, <laughs> standardized practices squash those stigmas. Yeah, but you know what? We do have to go uphill a little bit on this. The hospitals are only doing what the recommendation is from our, our resuscitation leaders. And the resuscitation leaders, although in their fine print, have been saying since the 80s that two years is too long, they're still pushing once every two years. And then again, in the small print. And by the way, in order to make this really come to life, you should do multiple hands-on in, you know, there's all kinds of other stuff that you should be doing, but make sure you do this first. And that's the, that's the standard. So hospitals are getting away with the standard, the basic minimum, because that's what our resuscitation giants are saying is what we do. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. Not anymore. Kids. What? Andra? We've lost the artistry of common sense yeah. in the healthcare field. So. Yeah. Well, because it, you know, a mandate doesn't do it because, but if you harness the nurses intrinsic motivation to learn and they're, you're, they're told you don't want to feel like shit. You don't want to feel scared. You're always going to be trepidatious, but you want to feel confident that you know what to do. Then no matter what the requirements are of your unit, take responsibility for your own psychological safety, for your own mental health. And if, if they don't give it to you, go find it. You know, yeah. get, get with some nurses yourself and just go go practice together. So you guys don't have to feel that way. I know we're short on time to couple on that. Sorry, really quick. Yeah, it's yeah, funny. Yeah. So my wife is like one of the lead nurse practitioners, a huge level one trauma center here in Orlando. And uh, she, they decided to start an APP fellowship program. And they said, well, you've been here the most, you've been here at this hospital 35 years. We'd love you to be the director of it. She's like, what? And so we created the stuff. And of course I all of a sudden became the unpaid administrative assistant for this, her job. And, uh, you know, so what is going to happen? So we have to run, she has a simp lab that they do every other week. And so the PAs and the nurse practitioners that are the fellows are coming in to run with a sim lab. Somebody's running the sim lab, but they needed somebody to be a nurse. And she's like, can you be the nurse? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Now these are the nurse practitioners been nurses before, and I'm not saying they're bad, but they're now responsible, right? They're their nurse practitioner. They're the provider. They're no longer the bedside. They are the provider. And the PA is, well, what'd you do before? Oh, I was in marketing. Oh, cool. Good. Awesome. <laughs> and, uh, was a musical prostitute. So just, try, just trying to teach them. Yeah. Just trying to teach them the basics. And they're like giving me a sheet saying, okay, if they don't do this, you can prompt them. And I'm trying to be the educator, even though I'm not, but I'm like, they go in and the patient's there, they're having chest pain, oxygen saturations are 86%. And I was, they're saying, oh, well, we should probably get a chest x-ray. I'm like, well, you know, their oxygen saturation is 86%. Maybe we should do something to help get that up. And yeah, let's do a chest x-ray. Are you, are you sure? This would, you know, and then finally, my wife says, is there anything you want to add at the end of the training session? I'm like, yeah, ABC, ABC, airway. If airway is not patent, nothing else matters. And once it's patent, if they're not breathing, guess what? Nothing else matters. And if they're, and if they are breathing or you're breathing for them or they're intubated and not a vent, 
Well, then circulation. Let's look at the hemodynamics. Then let's look at the rhythm. Let's just do ABC. And if you do those simple things, and thank God they didn't. I thought they were going to go to a code, and they didn't in the scenario. I was like, wow. But it was neat to see that APPs, who are going to be rock stars eventually, they're still just baby APPs, uh, they are they have the same fear the same intrepidation of oh my god i'm every i've lost everything and uh so i'll have to remember that next time i help out i'm just going to yeah. do it susan to just breathe take a second maybe <laughs> abc yeah. is the pathway or the password to peace i mean it's just yeah. like okay that's it R- rpms respiration perfusion mental status rpms rpms are they breathing respiration good or bad this is what i teach mm-hmm. in my vision in the acuity right R- respiration good or bad like good or bad <laughs> perfusion do they look good or bad you can tell when yep. you look at somebody like everyone knows when someone's sick they look yeah. bad right yeah. and then mental status are they cuckoo all of a sudden you know are they are they pulling at? i mean you know is it good or bad so i mean honestly the cross are they assessment, sh- shouting incoherently about transgender yeah, I mean, chickens <laughs> has it changed dramatically from this morning i mean this is this is what we're talking about it's truly your intuition of sick and not sick Recognize a problem, call for help, begin compressions, and use your electricity. That's it. We're not asking for uh, much more than that. That's it. Yeah. Check. Jeff, thank you. All right, you. team. You guys are rock literally, literally rock star. You're going to need to give us your gig, uh, your gigs. So uh, when we're in Orlando, we yeah. can check it out. Yeah, give us the name of your pimp. Disney God. World. You can come see us play. It'll be fun. Play so. pimps at Disney World. <laughs> yep, yep. I get you get your forty percent off a hotel resort. It'll be awesome. So, Thanks, Jeff. There you go. Thank Bye. you so much, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Nailed it. Renegades.